I would like to invite you again to stand up, please, for the reading of the Word of God. And we will start reading um, first from Matthew 14, 17. Just one verse there, and then we will move to Matthew 5. Hear now the Word of God. Matthew four seventeen. <clears throat> from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they, shall, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are um, the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning hungry and thirsty for your word. We empty ourselves this morning and our thoughts, our own ideas, and, and ask for new manna, new uh, food come, coming from you straight to your people. I pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, use us this morning to further your kingdom, that we would be willing to receive your word with gladness and with joy, that we would be obedient to your word, that we would not add or take away not even one word or one letter from it. Help us, Lord, stay humble this morning and plead with you this morning to receive a word from you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. By way of introduction to this passage that we just listened, um, I want to take you to a, a very significant day in history that happened on June 6, 1944. And um, if we know a little bit of history, we would know this is just around World War II. Um, I know there's a lot of anxiety and stress and uh, questions about what's going on in the world right now. And um, 
somehow you see history repeating itself over and over again, and sometimes we learn from it, and some, sometimes we don't. In June the 6th of 1944, uh, that was um, a battle called D-Day. I'm sure a lot of people heard about it, if not everyone here. And that was uh, a battle that happened between the Allied forces, the American forces, and the European forces against the German um, uh, forces. Um, 160,000 Allied troops landed on the beach of Normandy, France, and they began this operation to liberate Western Europe from uh, Nazi Germany, German control. It was one of the most complicated military feats in history. That day um, was a big and major blow to the German um, um, forces. And for all intents and purposes, that day marked the victory of the Allied forces and the American forces against the German um, uh, Nazi regime. But that was not the end of it all. There was still some wars to be happening afterwards. But everyone on both camps knew that that day, the writing has been on the wall. It's just a matter of time where the formal, consummated victory will be declared. And some of the theologians try to kind of um, think of the kingdom of God along those lines. The message title today is um, Man's or God's heavenly kingdom versus man's worthless one. Um, and with this D-Day that happened, even though the victory is not completely consummated, there was still some work to be done. But like I said, for all intents and purposes, everybody on both camps, on either camps, knew that victory is inevitable. A theologian by the name of Oscar Coleman, a 20th century theologian, he compared the kingdom of the world uh, kingdom, kingdom, kingdom of God to World War II with that day. Um, so you have D-Day happening on June 6th, but then some time will have to elapse before the actual, official, formal, completed victory that would happen. And that day was also called um, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. Between D-Day and VE Day, battles still ensued, and a major battle happened, actually, it was called the Battle of the Bulge. I didn't know a whole lot about it until I started reading more about it. And actually, one of, it was one of the deadliest battles in the history also where American forces lost almost 19,000 troops. And you wonder, how come we still are losing souls and we're still in fighting, even though we already had a D-Day? Because D-Day was just a major, deadly blow, but not the full and final blow. Very similar to how we encounter the kingdom of God. As we continue to try to explore that concept in the Bible, Old and New Testament, you will realize that it's a kingdom that is here, but not yet. And it's a paradoxical way of understanding what the kingdom of God is, and we'll have to kind of unpack this a little bit as we go forward. Um, A theologian by the name of uh, J.I. Packer tried to describe what preaching is, and he said, it's the event of God himself bringing to an audience a Bible-based, Christ-related, life-impacting message of instructions and direction through the words of a spokesperson. And my prayer today that, that God would use um, someone like me this morning to present uh, the Word of God to you. 
And I pray that it would be Bible-based and Christ-centered or Christ-related and also life-impacting because that's the whole essence of listening um, to preaching that, that will impact our lives as well. The word kingdom in the Bible is, has been mentioned many times, especially in the New Testament. It was mentioned about 162 times, and it's, it means in Greek, basilia, or basilia, primarily mentioned in the Gospels, 126 times in the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then all of a sudden, you see a drop in the use of the word kingdom with the epistles, because now that Jesus came and said, the kingdom is here, the kingdom is at hand, now Paul and the other apostles who wrote various epistles, they now talking more um, and putting more emphasis on the gospel itself. So 162 times in the New Testament, mainly in the gospels, and the word basilius or basilia means realm or rule or authority. So to give you a little bit of a historical background how we got there to Matthew 5, uh, you have from Matthew 1 to 4 kind of a, uh, a genealogy of Jesus Christ, his rescue uh, from Herod, and uh, multiple angelic appearances to, um, to Joseph and Mary. The rescue occurs, and then you have Jesus appearing on the surface of history in, 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 um, in person in Matthew uh, 4. But before him, we have John the Baptist uh, who came and started preaching um, a gospel of repentance, repent for uh, the kingdom of God is also at hand. Jesus Christ, when he came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, very similar to what uh, John the Baptist mentioned. However, as you continue to study the kingdom of God, how Jesus spoke about it and ex explained it in, in the gospels, the only, the main unique difference in Jesus' message is that, that people who are talking to him and listening to him right now, they will not see death before they will see it in fruition. They will see a significant manifestation of that kingdom. Um, so the question is, did, did, did people who listen to this message of Jesus actually see manifestation of that? And theologians say yes, and you see that... Um, a lot of commentaries talking about the transfiguration event itself as a significant manifestation of the kingdom of God and also the resurrection of Christ in, uh, uh, on Calvary. So these two events can speak to a strong manifestation of the kingdom of God while uh, Jesus was still um, here and people around him who listened actually witnessed that. As soon as Jesus become, gets baptized, he then goes to a period of um, time in the wilderness where he is tempted and he is victorious over those temptations. And then after that, he starts his ministry as we read in um, Matthew 4 and Matthew 5. And you see, as soon as he uh, starts his ministry, his ministry is teaching, proclaiming the word of God and healing the sick. He is basically saying that the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here now, and these are glimpses of what a fully consummated kingdom would look like. There is authority and power of Jesus Christ and God himself over the body, healing the sick, preaching and proclaiming the word of God, 
and casting out demons. In Colossians 1.13, uh, it says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. With all these uh, ministry events that Jesus has uh, brought up uh, in Galilee and Judea and the rest of the area where he was ministering, that brought a lot of crowd and fame around him and people started to follow him. And then we get to the point where uh, Jesus uh, see the crowd and then he went up to a mountain and started to preach and minister. Before we get to that point, you will uh, just consider how the Old Testament ended by in Malachi. In Malachi, um, he's reminding the nation of Israel, remember the law, remember the, the uh, maybe we should actually turn to it quickly. Because it has a significance in, as if Jesus is basically looking at how the Old Testament ended and how he is to start his ministry Malachi 4, starting from verse 4. That's, those are the very last verses in the Old Testament. And just kind of look at them as you look at the very first sentences that Jesus uttered on the Sermon on the Mount. He says here, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, and we know that John the Baptist is a representation of, of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the father to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land in a decree of utter destruction. And then Jesus comes and starts preaching. And if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, we didn't have time to read the entire Sermon on the Mount, it's about three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But it's basically Jesus saying that, remember the law, but we don't stop there. The law is designed to point to something. In fact, the word Torah or law itself meaning pointing to something. Um, and here Jesus comes, appear in history, starting in, in Matthew here, in, in a bodily form, God the man, and saying that, well, let's talk about the law, but let's not stop just there. Let's expound on it. Let's explain what it means to us. Let's talk about the heart of the law. Um, so when we talk about the kingdom of God, it's one of the really, uh, I would say, most ill-conceived concepts or ideas. If you ask people, what do you, what do you think the kingdom of God means? What is your definition of kingdom of God? What, is, what are your thoughts? And what do you think the Bible even says? You will see very different things and maybe contradictory opinions. So I, I hope and pray that by the time we leave today, we will have an understanding of what the kingdom of God is and what is the role for the kingdom citizens, which is, which is all of us here today. Not only it is ill-conceived, but it's also under continuous assault. As you see, uh, a lot of um, Christian liberalism going on now and trying to um, attack the relationship between God and man. It's been always throughout history trying to attack this relationship. And if we cannot deconstruct man because we are so proudful of, prideful of man, then let's deconstruct God and who God is and the image of God. 
Um, this is a continue, continue to happen in history that there is a lot of pride and rebellion of man leading man to continue an attempt to deconstruct who God is and attack the word of God himself. As I mentioned, kingdom of God is a paradox. It's here and not yet. Um, and I mentioned this, the, the D-Day as um, you have some victory, you know it's, that victory is inevitable, but it's not fully consummated yet. There's still some time to come. And we are in the time between this D-Day and V-E Day. And when we have those battles, there, there will be, uh, the kingdom of darkness will continue to uh, attack us as Christians, and we are to be anchored in the word of God to be able to resist this, uh, this fight. C.S. Lewis describes the kingdom of God as the time of day, as dusk. We are coming out of darkness. It's a little bit light, but it's not fully lit yet. That's what uh, he described the kingdom of God. You can also view the incident of Enoch in the Old Testament as a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. If you look at the genealogy in Old Testament, you read uh, this person had this children, and then he died. And then this person had this children, and he died. And then all of a sudden you have an Enoch appear, and he was no longer there because God took him. It's a little bit of a glimpses in the Old Testament. You see throughout the Old Testament from Genesis, really all the way until Malachi and beyond, of course, in the New Testament, of God saying that I have dominion over death. Yes, all these people have died, but there is one person who did not taste death and he was taken by God. In Revelation 11, verses, uh, verse 15, it says, Then the seventh, seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the full consummation is not completed yet. Um, another theologian by the name of Graham Goldsworthy, he's, uh, he's an Australian theologian, and he uh, was trying to put a definition of the kingdom of God, and I think this will be very helpful for us to understand and maybe think about it, and uh, even almost, it helped me when I prepared this message to kind of memorize it in my head, because it puts, puts all the element that you need to fully, to have a good understanding of what the kingdom of God is, and he said, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And I will say that again. God's people in God's place under God's rule enjoying God's blessing. When was the first time you saw that in the Bible? Absolutely. From Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and just before the sin entered you see God's people, Adam and Eve in God's place, no better place than that. Under God's rule, he gave them uh, decrees to follow. And they enjoyed his blessings. Full communion with God and great healthy relationships between the two of them. And also a vertical relationship between them and God. So you think of the kingdom of God as a framework, you would understand really everything in the Bible. You, if you read the, the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, 
within the context of the kingdom of God, you will have very strong understanding of what God is trying to tell us in these passages. And it's not in contradiction with the covenant. The covenant also is a framework to understand the kingdom of God, or to understand the biblical knowledge and biblical narrative. Uh, but they are the same. They are really pretty much the same. Covenant and kingdom of God, they run in parallel. The covenant means a coming together of a stated and continuing relationship between two parties who previously were apart from each other. So it's a, it's a relation between two people and, uh, or two parties. It could be God and the nation of Israel, and it could be God, between God and the church right now. And it's very similar to what the kingdom of God is. It's God's people enjoying his blessings as well. The kingdom of God is not built by kingdom citizens. We do not build it ourselves. The Bible uses words such as receive the kingdom of God, inherit the kingdom of God, enter the kingdom of God. But there's no mention of we are the ones who will build it. It's the king who is on his throne. He is in charge and his rule is over this whole kingdom. Yes, we are citizens of the kingdom. We have this relationship with God. We, we are to help grow the kingdom through our lives and the things that we do and or don't do in, in our day-to-day -day life. But it is to be received, inherited, and entered by Christians like you and I. So it's not about us. I know it's always tempting to think that this is about us. It's not about us. It's about the king on his throne. A lot of... Um, Modern-day theologians try to explain the kingdom of God as something just between you and God. It's in your heart, and it's a feeling that you uh, are to keep to yourself. You do not have to impose on other people. You do not have to bring to the public square, but it is something that you live out. You are in that kingdom. Your eyes are always, should be, fixed and gazed upon that king and his rules. And that will have implications and ramifications around what you do outside of the church and outside of this comfortable place we're in right now once we leave and we are in constant um, relationship with, with the world around us. We talked about the kingdom of God being manifest in creation. It's outlined in Genesis 1 uh, through 3, uh, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 in the Garden of Eden. Um, but it will continue to, we will continue to abide and grow and shine ever brightly as we are members of the kingdom of God. Um, some have the misconception that it's just in the New Testament. It's a concept that only has been uh, present in the New Testament, but it's not like Adam was mentioning. It is, you see, manifestation of that really from the very, very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible. Uh, and we will talk more about uh, some verses in the Old Testament that will actually testify to that as well. So if you take um, uh, almost like a, a bird's eye view of the Bible from beginning to end and try to understand, uh, kind of apply this frame, framework of the kingdom of God to the whole Bible from beginning to end, you will see um, almost three phases of the kingdom of God. You will see a perfect kingdom. That's the one we talked about in, in creation, in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. And it ended in uh, the man and his wife. 
they were both naked and were not ashamed. That's the perfect kingdom. And then a spoiled kingdom right after that, which happened in Genesis 3, 1 to 19, when sin entered and a separation had to occur between a sinful man and woman and a holy God. But that's not it. The Bible could have ended there and you could not, you could not blame God. You could say, okay, this is, this is the end. There is a, a sin and here's the punishment. Full stop. The Bible ends and it's just four or five chapters. But by the grace of God, there is another phase that we're in right now and that is a promised kingdom. So you have the perfect kingdom and then the spoiled kingdom and then the promised kingdom. And that promised kingdom also starts in Genesis, somewhere in Genesis where it says, he shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head. And that is the word of God um, that you can see it clearly throughout the whole, the whole Bible consummating the appearance of Jesus and, and crushing death on the cross. I know we read Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 1 through uh, 3 through 10, but I would like to read it once again because it's, uh, it's one of the most eloquently written passages in the Bible that talks about uh, why, why is it that we, we live in this kingdom. And uh, if you have your Bible, turn again to Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. Again, it's not about us and the feeling that it, you will generate by being a citizen of that kingdom. It's not, it's not even about the blessing that you enjoy being in the kingdom. But the ultimate purpose of all that is to the praise of His glorious grace in verse 6. With which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time. So here is the not yet part, right? There is here, it's here, but it's also not fully consummated yet. As a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. There will be one day where there will be a new heaven, a new earth. So as I said in verse, in, in verse 6, it, it hints at the ultimate purpose of God's endeavor to establish His kingdom. There is a purpose for that, and that is to bring full glory to, his, to Him and to His name. So between a kingdom spoiled and kingdom promised, you have a redemptive plan. And the whole Bible from Genesis 3 until, until the end of the Bible, it talks about a redemptive plan for the people of God, for His elect. Psalm 19 is a beautiful psalm because it's really described, it's almost like a, if, you would, if you would think of the kingdom of God as a nation now, every nation, like the U.S. here, we have a constitution. We have a, a, 
almost a declaration of that kingdom. And I look at Psalm 19 as that kind of psalm where it can outline almost a constitution for that kingdom. And I will read uh, to you, if, if you're able to open to Psalm 19, starting from verse 7, that would be great. If not, I will read it out loud now. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Another psalm that I would encourage you to read, but we will, for the sake of time, we will, uh, I will just tell you if you have time when you go home, read Psalm 96. Also, it's a kind of an anthem or a cry of the people of God in the kingdom of God, Psalm 96. And it calls us to drop all our idols if we are to be citizens in this kingdom. Now, I know I spoke a little bit about this kingdom of God. Is it just purely spiritual? Does it have any outside implication? And um, I came across this passage that I would like to just kind of read verbatim because I feel uh, it will convey a good message or a good uh, point here about the misconception that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom and not a political one. Uh, Jesus did not come to bring a political kingdom but a spiritual kingdom. That's the misconception. If you mean by that, that this kingdom of God is not supposed to impact the way we do politics, the way we shape society, the way we have assumptions about how we treat each other, then that is wrong. If you mean just pray in your closets, be nice, this is how the kingdom takes effect. We are not to um, have an outward look of that kingdom. That also would be wrong. Because the kingdom will have deeper implications on the fabric of society and impact the way we do politics, the way we vote, the way we live our life, the way we live our life in the city, in the urban areas, suburban areas, inner cities. That is what the kingdom of God is about. Bringing about change through us as instruments in God's hand. So first, get the theology right because outside of the, out from, from the theology you will have the, the, the applications. If we do not have the right theology of the kingdom of God, then the application would, would have a dire implications on, on that. Um, speaking of politics, a lot of um, misconceptions also about maybe there is one political system that would work better for the kingdom of God, another one works worse for the kingdom of God. I disagree with that. Uh, it is not based on any world system. 
whether that's capitalism or communism or any other ism, um, uh, Alistair Begg, uh, uh, a preacher and a pastor uh, in Ohio, he, he says, under communism, man exploits his fellow man. Under capitalism, the reverse is true. So no political system that we see right now in this world has not been touched by sin. You don't have a perfect political system that would carry on the kingdom of God's concept or precepts. So uh, just remember that. This is not, um, there's not an economic theory that is not impringed upon by sin. We talked about the kingdom of God in uh, the New Testament and, and also, uh, as Jesus mentioned that in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are a lot of scriptures uh, and verses in the Old Testament, and for the sake of time, I will just go through them quickly. There are three main points that you see the kingdom of God highlighted in the Old Testament, and the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, understood the kingdom of God in those, in those um, points. One, that it has an everlasting duration. It is not temporary, it's everlasting duration. You see in Daniel 2.44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So, it's not a New Testament concept. It's been there from the very beginning. The people of Israel understood that that's an, it has an everlasting component to it. They also understood that it has present and tangible aspects in the lives of the ancient Israelites. Psalm 72, verses 1, 2, and 3 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteous to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. And then the, the third element for the Old Testament Jewish nation or the nation of Israel, that they, under, they understand there is a future appearance of a superior and more comprehensive kingdom. Uh, we are studying now First um, uh, Samuel and looking at kings and how they do just wonderful job to appoint and then they disappoint and they fail us. I was reading recently about King Uzziah uh, who started his king, kinship when he was, I believe, 16 years old. He was a very successful, strong king who followed after God's rule and law for 52 years. Somehow, all of a sudden, this wonderful, wise, strong king just disappoints to just shocking degree. I don't, does anyone know what he did over his, the last period of his life before he died? I can give you a hint. He died of leprosy. He was stricken by leprosy. All of a sudden, this wonderful king who was, who was doing great, just one day he became very proud of himself and of his accomplishment. And he said, well, we know from the very beginning that no one is to enter the temple and do sacrifices except the priest, the descendant of Aaron. That guy, all of a sudden, his pride just took a hold of him completely and shockingly and sadly, he decided to just become the priest. He just go into the temple without any of this ritual that you are supposed to do. It has a lot of significance. The, everything the priest w was to wear 
entering into the, king, into the temple has a lot of significance. It's not just a man entering the, 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 that temple, but it's anointing by God himself for a special job, special work. But this guy, just all of a sudden, he decided to, um, to enter the kingdom, to, to enter the temple. Um, so let me just quickly read those few verses. Um, they are in Second Chronicles chapter 20, 26 starting from verse 16. But when he was strong, when that king was strong, he grew proud to his destruction, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him and he grabbed 80 more people to go after this guy to stop him from this foolish thing that he's about to do. Azariah the priest went after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead. That's from a, a Jewish Eastern culture. The forehead is really the, the area where people kind of signify honor and pride. Um, when people, when, uh, even when you hug someone or kiss someone, usually, usually you would kiss them on the forehead or on their shoulder as a signifying, this is, the, this is your pride, this is your dignity. And God decided to take away all dignity from this man who thought he just reached the top of the mountain of victory. And, um, and God struck him with leprosy, and he died with the leprosy. All that to say that, as I mentioned before, there is a, a lot of kings in the Old Testament, a lot of uh, events in the Old Testament. And you, as you continue to read the Old Testament and narratives, you get to a point where you feel just suddenly disappointed. Like, why did he do that? Why did David do that? What are you thinking? And I believe God is keeping all that in the Old Testament to say, it's not, this is just, there's just a, a vague or maybe a little bit of an idea of what is to come. A perfect David will come. A perfect Moses will come. But as long as we have, we struggle with sin, there will be disappointment and defeat. And someone like Uzziah just messing everything up toward the end of his kingship. As, as I mentioned, the, New the Old Testament, we, are, we also have several scriptures in the New Testament to speak about the kingdom of God. We already said John the Baptist preaching the kingdom of God and a kingdom uh, and judgment and repentance. And then Jesus coming and say, yes, that is true. But also, some people who are listening to me right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God. So we, we said the transfiguration and, uh, and uh, crucifixion and resurrection uh, have um, witnessed that the kingdom is coming. There is also a lot of prophetic uh, messages um, about the kingdom of God you see in Isaiah 9 chapter uh, Isaiah 9 verses 6 and 7 
it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Also in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as a king, and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and, and Israel will dwell securely. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus um, started his ministry and then chooses a mountain as a witness of his very first sermon, uh, you can't uh, help but think about also the first law that was given by God to Israel and really his people in general, also on a mountain. If you look at, compare Jesus and, and Moses, you will see um, Moses also uh, getting to the mountain, but in, in that at that point, God said, let the people stay away from the mountain. Here, Jesus is actually, people are coming close to him and approaching him because now we have, yes, we have the law that Moses have, uh, has uh, provided to us or our God provided to us through Moses, but now it's time to expound on the law and talk about the heart of the law, why, why that law matters. So you will, um, as you think about the, the Sermon on the Mount, we uh, thinking about the literary form of this uh, of this Sermon on the Mount, and it's it's called oracle, and that's what uh, usually the prophets would use in the Old Testament also as a as a literary form of writing, and it's uh, there are two kinds of oracles. One is called the oracle of weal, and the other is called oracles of woe. The oracles of weal, W-E-A-L, which is blessedness. The oracle of woe, which is woe to you. And then you continue the sentence. You'll see that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke the words that God had placed in their mouth, the favorite method of the prophet used to express the word of God was the method called the oracle. The prophets knew well how to use these two kinds of oracles. The oracles of weal would be known by the word blessed, and the oracle of doom would be known by the word woe. And when Jesus uses the word blessed as the very first really word he says in this, in this very first message, uh, he knows he, is, he, he who is talking to, he's talking to the nation of Israel who are used to this. Uh, there is always uh, the benediction where it says, uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up the light of his countenance and give you peace. He's now talking about, this is the true blessing. This is what it means to be blessed in the New Testament. So you have a wonderful location, which is that mountain. You have an ultimate preacher, which is Jesus Christ himself, the face of wisdom. Uh, he knew very well the will of the Father. He's a focused preacher. He knows the message, and he's about to deliver uh, a major message to the people. And a lot of the things that we, uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, kind of gets misinterpreted because 
you need to understand the audience. If you are going to take something from this Sermon on the Mount and apply it somewhere in our life, you need to know who it was said to. It was not for people in general, but people who are, uh, first, it's convert from Judaism, people who are seeking and fervently asking for wisdom from Jesus Christ, because seeing the crowd, he went up in the mountain and they followed him, the disciples followed him. Those people have already made some commitment to follow Jesus Christ. So if you take a paragraph from the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to any situation in the world, it may not, it, 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 it will not work. You need to understand who the audience is. Uh, as I mentioned, um, in, the, in Malachi, it's almost as if Jesus is taken, taken up from where we left off in Malachi. It's almost uh, someone catching his breath, except it was 400 years of catching your breath. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. Here is Malachi, and here is Jesus appearing and speaking, ministering to his people on the mountain, and picking up where the Old Testament left off. Briefly, we'll talk about the Beatitude, but uh, the message is not intended to, um, to be exegetical preaching on the Beatitude today because of, we, we will need a uh, few more, few more uh, Sundays to talk about that. But you will see in all of those Beatitudes a double portion. Yes, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. And, and Jesus here says, blessed is, are the poor in spirit. So here it is. Here's your first portion, blessed now, for they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and then also a future blessing that is to follow them. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed now, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The main beatitude that I believe the rest of them hang on or depends on is the very first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, poor in spirit means a gracious disposition of the soul by which we are emptied of self in order to be filled with Jesus Christ. You will see examples in the, in the, in the Bible of people who are poor in spirit and acknowledge that or actually rich in spirit and say, no, we are poor. We have a lot, but we, before God, we empty ourselves of, of all that. You will see that church in, in uh, Laodicea, in Revelation 3.17, it says, You say that I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and, and do not need a thing. But do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked? So you have this church that think, they're, think of themselves very highly, but they are indeed very poor. You compare that to the posture of Paul himself when he said that he's the least of the apostles. Despite all the knowledge that he has, all the wisdom that was given to him by God and manifest in, a lot of his, in, on, on, in all of his epistles, he says that I'm the least of the apostles. So being poor in the spirit means to see and appreciate our finitude and smallness compared to God's infinitude and greatness. We are not to depend on our own track record. We are not to look at the past and say, well, we have done well here. We are doing great there. This sin was, uh, was troubling me, but I have now had victory over it, so I'm, I should be okay. We should never depend on our own track record, but the, on the province of God himself getting, getting us through. So uh, a poor in spirit attitude 
is essential to accomplish all the rest of those Beatitudes. And it's, it's not for us as Christians to kind of pick and choose one versus the other, meaning, well, I think I'm good in that department. I'm good in the poor in spirit department, but I'm not sure about uh, those who mourn or those who are meek. Uh, it's really, it's all or nothing. And it's not you who are actually going to accomplish that. It's you being emptied of yourself and God poured His Spirit onto you so that you can manifest that. And if you look at all those Beatitudes, once again, read them together, you will see one person really being the manifestation of that and that is Jesus Christ Himself on earth manifesting all these Beatitudes. So it's important for us to understand that as we continue to uh, expound on the Word of God in Matthew 5 on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to close with, with this uh, last idea or comment. Um, a lot of people try to ask this question about what is it, what is, what is the Christian life is all about? What is, sometimes we get kind of caught in the details of some theology here and theology and doctrine here and doctrine there, but we miss the, the forest. And uh, that question was asked to many theologians, and I, it was asked to Martin Luther, and Martin Luther said, it's about living quorum deo, meaning before the face of God. And I believe the kingdom of God is just that. It's living under God's rule quorum deo, before the face of God. And if you think about it, you cannot live two lives. You cannot live in the kingdom this way and then live outside of the kingdom a different way. It's one unified way. You have to understand and know that God is able to see our actions, our, our thoughts, and our hearts as well. So living before the face of God is really the essence of the kingdom of God. It's living under his authority, accepting his rule, like we read uh, multiple scriptures here about that righteousness, that's what God is seeking. This is something that we cannot come up with on our own. It will always be a dependence on God himself to clothe us in Christ with his righteousness. So the kingdom of God is living in God's place, with God's people, under his rule and enjoying his blessings. And I pray that this would be our cry today, that we would uh, see a manifestation of this kingdom in our lives in our interactions with people around us, and also living uh, a holy life before the face of God. Let's pray.